0: Confederacy put an astonishing proportion of its white male population under arms during the Civil War, but not everyone who could have enlisted. Why did some stay and some go? We'll ask the scholar who's working on that problem, Dr. Kenneth Know, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Are you a health-conscious, motivated mom who wants to work part-time from home? Do you want to enhance your family's income, get out of debt, experience financial freedom, create a flexible schedule, set your own hours? These benefits are available to top performers of this 34-year-old, solid, stable company. www.lisastafford.com. Achieve personal wellness goals and make a difference in the lives of others. Receive coaching from the top achievers at this company. For more information, go online, lisastafford.com. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dahlnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that'll encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers at night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your Your next auction. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit WellNow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. WellNow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to WellNow.ca today. Have a question or comment to speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show call in toll-free in North America 877-514-7300
0: and from elsewhere in the world call 001-858-277-1444 welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio we're talking today with Dr. Kenneth No, author of Perryville, This Grand Havoc of Battle. Ken, I definitely want to ask you about your current research on uh, Confederate enlistments, but our listeners will never forgive us if we leave the Army of the Ohio and Army of Tennessee hanging uh, just uh, in the midst of their attack on uh, about 2 p.m. October 8, 1862 at Perryville. The Confederates have, have launch the attack, does it succeed?
2: It exceeds to a point. Um, The attack on the right uh, goes up against essentially um, a rookie division on a large exposed area called the Open Knob. The Confederates are ultimately able to drive Federal troops off this first high ground position, only to discover a second position of high ground. Uh, hidden behind them. Uh, Much of the fighting on the right takes place there in the afternoon. Eventually, the Federals will fall back from that ridge uh, back to a third ridge. This ridge uh, protects the crossroads. If this crossroads falls, the 1st Corps will be cut off from the rest of Buell's army. The fighting on this ridge is just tremendously ugly. Indeed, there's been much hand-to-hand fighting all the way along. But in the end, the Confederates are able to take that position and take the crossroads. This is the point that folks in Perryville refer to as the high water mark of the Western Confederacy. It's remarkable how much it reminds me of Cemetery Ridge, high ground, stone wall, important moment, just no monuments. Uh, It's still on private property, in fact. That part of the Confederate attack fails. The rest of the Confederate army has been pushing essentially from east to west again against that crossroads they finally managed to push troops into that crossroads after dark but they're not able to hold it Um, third corps has largely been inactive during the battle because of Buell, Gilbert, others not understanding what was going on but eventually you do have a couple of brigades that come over to help first corps they're able to secure the position uh, that night, the Confederates have certainly pushed the Federals back a long way. You have to call Perryville a tactical victory for the Confederacy. But that night, and just uh, from the reports coming in about the various re- regiments that are represented among prisoners, Bragg finally realizes that he's up against Buell's entire army, that he's woefully outnumbered. Buell has about 55,000 men, Bragg only has about 16,000 himself. So the Confederates retreat uh, first to Harrodsburg then to their basic camp at Robinson, and after a few days they head back toward Cumberland Gap, end up in Tennessee, uh, these two armies will meet again at Stone's River. A tactical victory for the Confederates, but a strategic Union victory in that the Confederates are driven from Kentucky.
0: Uh, Kentucky will remain a part of the Union for the rest of the war. And in that sense, it resembles Antietam, where we really certainly outgenerals Generals McClellan in terms of tactical skill. But when it's all over, it's the Confederates who, who leave the state.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I've made that comparison, and others have as well. What Polk does, falling back into the defensive position, waiting for reinforcements, is very reminiscent of what Lee does along Sharpsburg Creek.
0: Now, you mentioned that part of Perryville's private property. It, it In my view, Perryville is one of the most evocative battlefields mm-hmm. we have left uh, because it's just so unspoiled. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the genesis
0: of that park was created really in the 1950s, but
2: it only accomplished, accomplished it only accomplished the area on the Confederate right. Uh, what you've had throughout the 1990s was uh, a coalition of private money and public money that began to acquire much of the rest of the battlefield from owners, most of the owners being the same families who owned it in 1862. Uh, it's an incredibly uh, pristine field, and... I really encourage people to go down this weekend for the reenactment, or any weekend, uh, to walk on that field. If you haven't been in five or six years, uh, you really haven't seen uh, the battlefield at Perryville. Most of it is on park property now, not all of it, but most of it. Um, Very few of uh, the big monuments that we see back east, Uh, there's a walking trail with some very good uh, markers, but they're pretty inobtrusive. It's... It's quite a place to go if you're interested
0: in the war i i I saw it the first time more than ten years ago, and the the state park was just a tiny sliver
2: mm-hmm.
0: but it was still as as you say untouched uh and when I was last there, maybe five years ago, much more of it was under uh state control, but there was also we we had a relationship with some owners who were able to go look in some of the houses, which was very interesting right uh but it is. Uh, where, where Perryville in 1862 was a one-horse town, now it's a one-stoplight town. It really has not grown.
2: It has not grown very much at all. Danville is nearby, and certainly one can go to Danville to sleep or eat. But Perryville has remained a, a very small town. And you know, I have to say, it's it's a really neat place. The people in Perryville, really all along, have been very concerned about preserving that field, mm-hmm. uh, preserving of the memory of what happened there. I mean, you can take that back to the end of 1862 uh, when the original Confederate cemetery was constructed. And to this day, people are are, are very willing to share their battlefield, yet they're, they're very interested in protecting it. It's a, it's a neat place to go.
0: It, it is. I, I completely share your view, and I encourage our listeners to go and visit it. Uh, don't wait for Walmart to try to build something there and, and for us to have to fight another battle to save it, uh, but go see it now. Uh, it is really in, in marvelous condition. Now, I I would love to go into more details. There's there so much to be said about this battle, but I do want to ask you uh, what you've been doing since the, uh, the Perryville book.
2: Well, I've uh, researched a couple of essays that involve uh, memory, how people remember the war and how their memories were often shaped by what was going on in their lives at the time. My big project has been... An examination of Civil War soldiers and their motivation for fighting, and people listening will say, "What's the big deal about that? It seems like everybody's doing that these days." I'm looking at a particular group. I'm looking at those soldiers, largely Confederates right now, uh, who did not enlist in 1861, who waited at least until 1862 to join up. There's some marvelous literature out there on soldier motivations, but so much of it largely deals with uh, the men who joined up when the war began. So. you know, To borrow uh, James McPherson's uh, categories, which he actually borrowed from one of my Illinois professors, uh, John Lynn, uh, initial sustaining combat motivation, I'm looking at those things, but I'm also looking at the motivation of why they didn't enlist in the first place. Why did they wait? Uh, I'm probably about a third of the way through the research I want to do for that, but uh, some patterns are starting to emerge, and it's, it's, it's been an interesting project for me.
0: What are, Can you share any of those patterns? Sure. What are you seeing with these soldiers?
2: I find that you have to divide them up into two groups. I mean, first, you've got the young men who are just coming of age. They're turning 17 or 18. And they behave a lot like the soldiers. McPherson describes them for cause and comrades. They're motivated by ideology, uh, a Confederate independence in this case, uh, in terms of sustaining motivation, uh, comrades, friendship, very important. Uh, they make good soldiers, you have also got these these older men who seem to have held off because of family concerns. Uh, when they finally do enlist in 62 or 63, they're doing it because the bounty money is attractive, the draft is not attractive, they've got a chance to go off with relatives, not friends. Um, they'll often enlist when their state is immediately threatened by a Union army. Once they're in comradeship, in most cases has not seemed to be that important. They'll often talk about uh, relatives from other regiments that they run into from time to time, but they don't say a lot about the men they're serving with. What really seems to keep them going is family and religion, which become almost intertwined. They love their family so much that a lot of them become uh, much more religious because if they die, they'll always have a chance to see their families in heaven, if not on earth. Family and religion really seem to keep them going. In combat, I guess the old cliche works best. Uh, The spirit was willing, but often the body was weak. Uh, They don't seem to be shirkers. A few of them will try to get non-combat assignments, but most of them will take the fighting when it comes. It's just that it's older men. They don't seem as effective. They're in the hospital a lot more. Uh, They can't keep up with the march more often. Um, They try hard, I think. They try to do their duty as they see it. They're just not always able to do so because they're 35 or 40 years old in some cases. That's what I'm finding so far. I've done a little bit of work on federal troops, and so little, in fact, that I would hesitate to make any assertions about what's motivating them, but they do seem different than the Confederates, which I find interesting.
0: Well, this is really, I I think this is something we'll all look forward to reading. Uh, I assume this is something you're working on publishing in the the future. Um, We're we're talking here on the eve of Perryville Day in 2005. Uh, Maybe we'll see this in 2006.
2: Uh, Probably not 2006, maybe 2007.
0: Okay, well, that'll be something to to look forward to.
2: I'm trying to put together a large database
0: of soldiers
2: and their letters. I'm shooting for at least 5,000 Confederate letters, so... Um, I think probably another year before I'm prepared to start writing.
0: Yeah, if uh, if listeners have letters or are aware of them, would it help if they contacted you with it? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Uh, people can reach me pretty easily via email on the Auburn University History Department website, and I'm always looking for that sort of material, as we all are.
0: As, as we all are, but that would be, be helpful. This, this approach of looking at these cultural influences and political influences on what makes people serve, or how they serve, is really what has made military history, I think, for a lot of us, much uh, more interesting in the last 10 years. There's been so much interesting work in this direction. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, John Lynn. He he was your uh, advisor?
2: No, he was not my advisor. In fact, sadly, I never really took a class with John Lynn. I just knew John Lynn. John Lynn's a historian of the French Revolution, but his work has really come to influence uh, Civil War historians. I'm like a lot of Civil War historians, unfortunately, in that I'm a Civil War historian. I'm just bad Even when I write about military topics, if I do it fairly well, I guess I'm a Civil War military historian. But most of us lack that that broad training in world military history, that perspective, that
0: uh, understanding the histories of wars in Europe and Asia can bring.
2: And I'm starting I'm, I'm, to think that that's becoming more important to us.
0: I, I think seeing that in Civil War in a comparative light really does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, it's a coincidence, I happen to be reading Lynn's book on battle uh, this week. Uh, just pulled it off the shelf, and uh, his, his chapters comparing Greek and ancient Indian, ancient Chinese warfare up through the, uh, the French Revolution uh, to World War II tying things together through all these, he doesn't have a chapter on the Civil War in that book, but as I read it, I keep thinking, well, how would the Civil War fit into this? For me, one of the most important moments as a Civil War historian occurred at a a conference a few years ago,
2: there was a a panel on Sherman's march through Georgia, uh, and uh, Margaret pointed out that we wouldn't have this argument about whether Sherman was embodying total war or not if we knew about other wars besides the Civil War. I think Mark said something like, if you never studied the Thirty Years War, uh, you wouldn't think that what Sherman did was total war.
0: That's a very uh, good point. There, there's, without that perspective, uh, it's very easy to get locked into a much more narrow view of things. I'm encouraging all my students to, to do more work in
2: world military history now, because I think that perspective is important and will bring a lot to the study of the
0: Civil War. I think it will. I, I would encourage our listeners to do the same. Uh, to share with you any Confederate letters they have, or for that matter, Union soldier letters uh, touching on the topic of enlistment. And uh, once again, we've, we've too soon gotten to the end of our, our time here on Civil War Talk Radio. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Kenneth No, and thank all of you for listening. This is Jerry Prokopovich at Civil War Talk Radio. Rise